Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week I'm delighted to say we're joined by Nadia Urbinati, one of the world's leading philosophers of democracy, but also someone who knows a lot about Italian politics. And we are going to talk about Italian democracy. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. This week, we're also joined by Helen Thompson. Oh, I was lecturing to the first year this morning about Schumpeter. Oh! And I had a few five-star... This is the podcast. <laughs> Let's just leave this in. And we've got Chris Bickerton, who's written a lot about Italy in the past and knows quite a lot about what's going on there now. A very interesting conversation with Wolfgang Munkau. He's phenomenally interesting. Absolutely brilliant. Oh. Yeah. I've been talking to lawyers. <laughs> nothing more fun than talking to lawyers. Oh, I went around shopping. <laughs> no, I bought some books, several coffees, and here I am. So that's why you're... Yeah. Well, okay. That's great. This great. is the caffeinated podcast. <laughs> We're going to start with Italy. There are elections coming up in about six weeks, is that right? March the 4th of March. In about six weeks. Um, and then we'll broaden it out. And I think some of the themes that come out around Italy are general themes about the state of democracy. And I want to touch on Nadia's most recent book, which is called Democracy Disfigured. And I think it's probably the best book for understanding what's going on now. But if we start with Italy, the usual players are still playing. So let's begin with Berlusconi. Nadia, he's back. He's back. It's not like the mummy is back. So how come he's back? He's back. Well, he's back. He's never, he never left, de facto. So it was forced to leave because of the um, the trial he had. And he, for, he was forced to leave the Senate. But um, Berlusconi had an important impact in Italian politics. So his spirit was everywhere, although his body was somewhere in Milan. <laughs> But Berlusconi is truly everywhere. Even the new leader of the old, quasi-old party, the Democratic Party, came out of this Berlusconi time. The same kind of method of politics based on audience, based on very quick words, very non-political kind of politics, you know, the attack against the palazzo, the attack against the politicians, uh, cutting down taxes, uh, uh, not to be very serious uh, against evasion of taxes. So this kind of Berlusconi style is there. And has it been updated for a digital age? I think of Berlusconi as a TV politician. Oh, yes. But... We're sort of we're not quite post TV yet, but we're certainly in the the digital version of this. So, is Berlusconi politics is it different in 2018 than it was in 1998 in its style? So he's still a television person himself, but uh, the team he has around and the people working for him, uh, they are more into internet themselves than he is, generally. But the other leaders, uh, Renzi for the PD or um, Di Maio for the Five Stars Movement, they are 
on both registers, in the television and in the web. Uh, they tweet every day many times, and they are in Facebook, they have their own uh, homepage, and they are in television every day, practically. So it's not that one system cancels the other ones, the one system adds to the other one. So it is a kind of uh, eco chamber of um, audience everywhere. And with Berlusconi, so people sometimes, it's a pretty stretched analogy, but people sometimes talk about Trump as echoing some of Berlusconi's politics, although in many ways he's very, very different. Yeah. But new Berlusconi or Berlusconi back is in the era of Donald Trump. Has he learned anything from Trump? Is there any way in which Berlusconi is picking up on some of Trump's tweeting or anything else in the way he does politics? I think it's different. Uh, Berlusconi has this paradoxically in this moment, uh, I mean, I don't want to to seem like a Berlusconi fan because I'm not, but in this moment it seems that he is playing the game of moderating the right. So the right that is allied to him, which is uh, the new league, uh, the new league and order, which is very racist and much more fascist oriented than uh, the old league, which was local still and with strong democratic implications inside. But this league is very anti-immigrants, it's very xenophobic. They even, even uh, try to make it ordinary to speak about race. So Berlusconi, in relation to these allies, this league, he plays the game of moderating them. So paradoxically, it is good to have uh, these center rights not completely into the xenophobic right, although he opened the floor to it because uh, when he started doing politics, he started doing politics against so against communism, against the left, against. So he opened the floor to an against politics. But now this against that he presents is also against immigration, but not in the same xenophobic way. So it's... One question I had was there's a lot of talk across Europe about grand coalitions. And, you know, we're at a time where the efforts in Germany to have a grand coalition are on a, a knife edge. In the Italian case, I mean, if we... I mean, a lot can happen in six weeks, but if we take the sort of the polls roughly as they are now, it's unlikely that you'd have anything other than a kind of coalition. Is anything like a centre-right and a centre-left coalition either, I suppose on one hand, first is whether it's possible. The second question, which I suppose is more difficult, is whether it would be desirable. I'm very curious to know what you think about that, Nadia. Yeah. This is has to do with this new electoral system, which is... Uh, it has been conceived by the makers, meaning Renzi and Berlusconi, because they had an agreement. The agreement was to create a, an electoral system that wouldn't prize any big winner and to force to have a coalition. In order to have these two parties coalition, the Berlusconi's party and the PD, so as to be able to eliminate or to weaken the wings. Because Renzi has a very anti-left trajectory he wants to be in, and so he doesn't want to have a strong left, but also Berlusconi doesn't want to have a strong right. So they thought that this new electoral system would be good for them. The paradox is that you can win if you 
create a coalition before creating the coalition. And of course, you cannot go to the electors, if you are a Democrat, saying, look, vote for us because we create a coalition with the the center-right. So they are forced into a pre-election coalition, and thus it's difficult for them to have their own planned coalition after, I hope, I think it would be difficult. But they cultivated this idea. So in the mind of Renzi, the solution would be following. The centre-right, they will get a lot of votes. We presume they will get more than 30% for sure. But since they are so different inside, one very xenophobic, the other less, this coalition cannot hold true. So they will split and the moderate side will create a coalition with us, with us meaning the Democratic Party. This is their dream, somehow. And since people, many, they understood that this might be the dream, they want to make the PD not strong so that it cannot cultivate that dream. So they're going to punish the PD precisely because they understood in advance their plan, the plan of the PD, I mean. So has the effect been that the desire to drive out the extremes, for want of a better word, has empowered them? Exactly. Paradoxically, they are, I mean, the PD, in some sense, is... It's like the midwife creating or bringing to life to a real and perhaps, unfortunately, large enough right-wing coalition. Can I ask a different question? Yeah. And that is, is how much of what Berlusconi is doing in terms of presenting himself and Forza Italia as a moderating force is actually about the European audience, the EU audience, Excellent. because obviously he was forcibly removed from power by them last time. So he can't himself be prime minister, but if his party is going to be back in power, it immediately raises the question, well, does it suffer the same fate as the last government which Berlusconi headed? So is, in some sense, his audience actually Germany, France, Merkel, Macron, but what then is the effect, if that is the case, of the way in which Italian voters perceive the situation? That is a great question. Now, it seems that in Europe, the PPE, which Berlusconi's party is part of, They support Berlusconi. They released a um, document a few days ago, three days ago, in which they recognize and they support it. Because if Berlusconi doesn't run, because he can't, but there are many other politicians ready to jump into these cards. So one of them has been playing a very important role in the uh, European Committee, Tajani. And Tajani is going to have an important role in uh, making the EU very well disposed toward them, as they are doing now. So it's not like a Berlusconi in 94 or in 98. This is a Berlusconi that has been tamed and moderated and also, you know, chewed enough by other people to be digested. And many accept him outside of Italy and inside of Italy. is not anymore the anti-establishment kind of uh, political leader as it was in 94, and is no longer that kind of uh, macho of 2008, also because he's old. So he acquired through age the kind of legitimacy to be a moderate right wing. 
is it not possible that he hasn't changed so much? No, he's not. But it's because everything on his <laughs> the right scenery has, moved like, around exactly. has become so much like him, exactly. um, but just a slightly more extreme version. Exactly. Um, These are all children of him in some sense. So Berlusconi changed the political environment of Italy, the language, the performance, the topics. They are Berlusconi is really the shaper of uh, post-Cold uh, War Italy, de facto. And now all the other movements, leaving aside this Five Stars movement we should talk about we will. soon. We will. In traditional politicians, Berlusconi is still capable of having this influence, either direct, as in the past, or indirect, as now. So you asked me before about Trump. I don't know whether Trump will have this the same impact because Trump... Uh, operates inside of a party, already existing, good or bad, doesn't matter. But Berlusconi made his own party. So he shaped truly a kind of language and organization, according to the image of a firm, private firm. So his party is still there. We thought years ago that as soon as he would go home forever and for good, the party would disappear. No, the party is still there, very settled in all Italy, north and south. So it is a new party. Truly. Uh, One question I always follows from though is, is what happens if his party is in coalition, whether it be a grand coalition or whether it be a coalition of mm. the right, is Berlusconi sufficiently reformed, moderated, whatever language that we're going to use, that he now is committed to following Eurozone fiscal rules, which is obviously the issue that did for him yeah. last time, because actually he can talk all he likes about you know, mm. sounding less xenophobic than the parties to his right, and he can knock down um, the Northern League for its anti-Euro position and say, no, that's not grown-up politics. But what's actually going to happen if well, his party's in power? Is it actually going to behave any differently than it did last time? Mm. And if not, what are the consequences? Look, before, before the great crisis, when he contested the European 3%, uh, you know, threshold, that was before the crisis. During the crisis, many countries had the problem of going beyond the threshold. Well, uh, we cannot say that Berlusconi was the only one. The anti-Europeanism or the anti-pact is almost everywhere. So somehow Berlusconi is no longer penalized for what he says about or against or of critical tone of Europe because this is part of the European um, climate. So. Europe is not truly against him, and he is not truly against Europe in this moment. Before we come on to the five-star movement, which we'll get to in a second, just one other question, which is about Renzi, but also how Macron has changed the dynamics of politics. Because I've read in the last few weeks that he is a sort of role model for now a generation of Italian politicians who see something new that he's made possible, both in terms of how he may or may not stand up to the Germans, but also he created a party from scratch. He's offering a new kind of centrist politics. This is but Renzi? It, well, this is Macron, but can Renzi learn from him? Can he reimagine himself? Because, as you say, these things are happening within existing parties that have been formed a while ago, but there's now a kind of shape to Italian politics. And yet these amazing things are happening in America, in France, where these people break through, seem to offer a new way of doing it. Is there any sense in Italy that let's forget Trump, but Macron offers a model of a new kind of politics. You know, after the disaster of uh, the last year referendum, in one uh, of my crazy uh, moments, I wrote uh, a letter to one of 
journalist of the, the Repubblica private email saying, look, according to me, Renzi should simply abandon the PD and create his own party. This was the 5th of December 2016. Because the problem of Renzi is the following. He occupied the party. He changes people around him, you know, in the Schumpeterian way. He made his own groups of aficionados in order to conquer the entire party. But he produced instead a sense of resentment, a sense of hatred against him that is very hard for those who feel to be occupied to accept him completely. So now he didn't create his own party. He forced an existing party to adapt to himself and now he realizes that this is going to be very bad for him. People don't like him. So what he's doing now? is sending the message that he will not necessarily be the prime minister or the candidate, that other people can play that role inside of his party. For instance, Gentiloni, who uh, meets with much better results, perhaps. In any case, so he made this big mistake. He should have, in fact, followed immediately. The Macron example. The Macron example, even before Macron, uh, you, you know. You make the break and... Exactly. That would be a successful, I would never vote personally, but there are many people ready to do and to vote. He would cover the centre, a little bit of the right and a little bit of the moderate left. But it's too late now. It's too late now. Now he has a party that is uh, weak. Do you know how many members? I'm guessing less, not a lot. Less than 100,000. Well, it's like the British Conservative Party. It's 90,000. It's almost exactly what the British Conservative Party is. But the yeah. new PD had around 800,000 and then 500,000 and less and less. Now it's under the threshold of 1,000. I mean, it means that there is no strong hold where to anchor yourself, you know. So he's looking for votes coming from here and there, but they are all occupied, those votes. Either they don't go to vote because they don't like many leftists, they don't go. Or if they vote, they position themselves, because now there are plenty of possibilities. They see five South movements, the Berlusconi New Age, kind of, and the right wing, and even small leftist parties outside of the PD. So I think it's not in a good shape. So let's talk about the Five Star Movement. What is its current role in, in Italian politics? What does it represent or who does it represent? There is a long story and a short story. A long story goes back to the origin of the our constitution and our democracy because inside of the Constituent Assembly, 46-48, there was a movement called Uomo Qualunque, you know, every man movement. Mm. Now every man is everywhere. Uomo Qualunque means anti-party, flat with the people without any ambition of political organizations, but simply ordinary citizens that want to live, uh, do their job and business outside of the imposition of organized parties. So against organized parties. That movement at that time had several deputies and then um, it disappeared because the democratic Christians were able to cover for that uh, disagreement with party system and include all of them. But after 92, this spirit of anti-party is back. 
is everywhere. And above all, because also Berlusconi profited at the beginning from these against the parties. And now the against the party made his own party. So the anti-party is a movement. And since the beginning, the Five Star Movements wanted to be, like the Charter says, an anti-party party or movement. So what does it mean? Not physical headquarters, they don't have. Not physical organization with the rules concerning how to elect representatives inside, but they are all connected by issues and topics through the web and with the parliamentary presence from 2013, they have tried to have some organization, but they can use the parliamentary rules to make organization. So it is a parliamentary party, like in the 19th century, because the parliament has is regulations concerning you have to have groups, you have to have committees, you have to have... So thanks to the parliament, they get some organizations, but it's a party of parliament. Outside of the parliament, there is simply the web. You enter the web, you can pay for a few money and you, you are part of this conversation. And the web, we don't know who is the ruler of the web. No, we know because Casaleggio first and then the son, Davide the second, and then Grillo, they are the master of the universe in some sense because they input, they create discourses, they attack, they chastise, they create monsters and they put them on the air and people pick up and they create a conversation. So it's a very populistic, without a strong parliamentary leader because he's not inside of the parliament. Something which is interesting is if Berlusconi was such a transformative figure for Italian party politics, and I think he was, he stepped into a vacuum and did something with it. And his, you know, he continues to be relevant and he he's reshaping it even today. The Five Star Movement, I suppose, now, you know, it erupted, first of all, in the figure just of Grillo and his sort of meetings in town squares and um, was very disruptive and very new. It's become more institutionalised, as you say, by having a parliamentary presence. It now has this figure of Di Maio that is very, very different from Grillo. What is the Five Star Movement, I mean, what has it done to Italian politics? Has it done anything, in fact? Or has it just put a few more issues onto the agenda, brought a few more people back into politics, possibly, but hasn't really had anything comparable by way of effect as somebody like Berlusconi. So the longest story that I mentioned before is exactly these people without politics, which in Italy were many. And the political parties tried to politicize them. During the resistance and after, the great parties politicized the citizens. Remember that Italy was made of 80% of the population never had a political experience until 45, before 45. So they educated them to enter in the language of politics, to become political actors or citizens, or um, enter in electoral campaigns for local, for municipal. They educated two or three generations of Italian politicians at all levels. Now, they did not, however, were, because of the corruption perhaps, because of the decline of parties, there was a reaction against this hyperpolitization of society. There was a reaction. The reaction is people 
don't want to talk about big ideas, but they want to talk what's happening in their own, uh, close to their own life. So it is, you know, Ostrogovsky, issue politics. My issue is this one, your issue is this one, and then there is a basket through the web, collecting all of things, like in a salad, and this is the Five Stars Movement. One second, they have something that Berlusconi didn't have, meaning they are anti-ideology. Berlusconi was strongly ideological against the communists. They are zero ideology. They are anti-partisan. And they have this idea of we the citizen, ordinary, we want the real data, we want objective data, you wrote about uh, technocracy, right? There is this myth of uh, the objective politics, leaving aside the politicians, the partisans, this is real politics. They are like that, this simplicity and objective. But isn't there some sense in which they are also the anti-technocratic party because of the in some sense, that their political rise comes from that point after Berlusconi's government fell and the technocratic Monti's government took its place. And after all, Italy hasn't had an actually an elected finance minister since that moment in 2011 when okay. Berlusconi was gone. So that whether it's genuine or not, they trade off being the party that still has got a commitment to democracy. OK. Avoid using the word technocracy because it's the power of the technician. Here is objective crasia, meaning we, w- <laughs> we want objects. Tell us what is that uh, is immigration. How much money do you invest? What is the outcome of that? We want to know. That is politics. And we do knowledge by ourselves because we collect information. So the Five Star Movement is production and consumption of news. They produce news, they pick up from everywhere and they put over this news in the web. So for them, this is politics. Politics is problem solving and they want to have the domination of the problems. So they don't delegate to your right to technocracy. So it's not technocracy, but it's the myth of objective politics without the, the contamination of ideology. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So, Nadia, can I try and link it to your wider argument in Democracy Disfigured, which is the book I mentioned earlier, which you, I think it was published in... 14. 14. So, sort of just before all of the events that dominate our political lives, certainly in this country, Brexit and Trump yeah. and Corbyn and everything else. And I've found it an invaluable guide to thinking about contemporary politics, partly because you do do the thing of saying it's not this binary populism on one side, technocracy on the other. And Chris has written about this too, that there are relationships between populism and technocracy. But also, you give us a three-way understanding of this. You separate out another thing which you call plebiscitary politics, which is not 
straightforwardly populist in any sense. Um, and, and there clearly is or are more than two things going on in our politics. So if we first of all just relate it back to the Italian case. So the Five Star Movement, it has some populist elements. It also has some... Plebiscitarian And it has some... Technocratic. Technocratic or epistemic elements. Yes. Berlusconi is the classic plebiscitary politician, yes. am I right, on your account? So just give us a little flavour of how you distinguish plebiscitary politics from populist politics. Because yeah. I think a lot of people just assume it's all yeah. one big populist salad, yeah. as you sort of said. Yeah, <laughs> no, because the plebiscite is a democratic institution because it's a way that we vote on by ourselves. So we express publicly our dislike or like. You can use uh, the plebiscite in order to create a republic, like in Italy, the 46, they had the plebiscite, do we want monarchy or do we want a republic? Yes or no? And, and to uh, be clear, we're talking about referendums. It is a referendum, uh, you know, is not on an issue. It's a form of expressing plebiscite for or against. There, there is also another use of the plebiscite, which is using the consensus strategy in order to validate or legitimate an existing power. So Napoleon was a plebiscitary leader, but he was already a leader. He wanted to have the support of the people in order to neutralize a kind of minority disliked the most. Um, so he wanted to have the direct relation to the people. So plebiscite is a direct relation to the people, not via intermediation, not via parties. So you want to, you know, to prove to the world that the people likes you. And it has a kind of showmanship to it, doesn't it? It's a sort of performance exactly. politics. It's a performance. There is the public, we call audience today, but it's the public, which is not the citizenry. The citizen is you and me together, thinking, discussing, doing. disagreeing, doing. The public is like when we go to the theatre, we sit over there waiting for the show to happen, and then we react. Because, you know, don't think that the actors don't feel us. They feel us. Because they feel if we boo, if we approve, and they moderate or change their showmanship in relation to what we react and we do. So it's not that the public is completely passive, but the activity of the public is like an echo in relation to the doing of citizenry or citizenship so and so it fitted the tv age among exactly. other things because tv compared to the web is a yeah. audience form of communication Absolutely. we audience, broadcast and you watch is an audience without or you a switch face off, or you switch without off. even a face because you don't know them you don't see them it is an amorphous entity without personalization and without internal articulation is an entity and so Berlusconi was able to transform this audience into a eco chamber of his words and now what Grillo does and this is more sophisticated in my view because it does through the web and the web is a way of making you active in some sense but remember they use I don't know if you are a more expert than I am on political science I'm not a political scientist but they use this platform called Rousseau, which doesn't work at all. This platform presumes that uh, you and me, we enter, we vote, or we propose, but there is no quorum. So how many people are participating in the web? Very few. With the participation of, with, you know, 40,000, 50,000, even less, you know, what I'm saying, much less, so there is no control over how many. So the more active they participate, 
the large majority of this public remains more passing than before. Remains the audience. Exactly. So then populism, which also is an element of contemporary Italian politics, that's different. And we talked to Jan Werner Muller about this. Yeah. I mean, that that is, if audience is about bringing the people in, populism is about rejecting elites, claiming to speak for the people the against, against the and system. And it's more mobilising. Because there is a mobilization in populism, perhaps in order to chastise the elite or the immigrants or those who are uh, infecting our nation, whatever. It's an against kind of ideology, particularly against the establishment, no matter whether the establishment is the low-level establishment or the high-level establishment. So anti-establishment is the glue connecting all the many antis of a populism. Populism has many antis, anti-parties, anti-ideology, anti-anti. And the anti-establishment links all of them. It's a form of determination of the people. So the people of democracy is indeterminate, no? There are many, there are different parties, different uh, belonging. But the populist people wants to determine who are the people? And who's not the people? Who is not the people? So it is a way of counting and it's a way of affirming that the majority is the good people. The others are simply not people. So it's not even that one party plays the game for the all, you know, past pro toto. No, it's not simply that because they don't really want to play the part of the all. They want to play the part from themselves, for themselves. So it is the occupation of the states when they reach the state and to use it in order to make the politics for them. There's obviously a lot of debate in this country about the status of the referendum mm. and the scope of the plebiscitary form of politics you describe seems very, very broad. You can have a kind of sort of Gaullist sort of approach, which is really, I suppose, about legitimising very significant constitutional sort of change, which seems you know, reasonable enough, to then this very unclear use of online participation through the Rousseau sort of system that the Five Star Movement uses. Um, and would you say the plebiscitary mode is acceptable when it invokes key questions of constitutional importance and is conducted through procedures that are open and transparent, whereas other forms are much less legitimate? Yeah, so. the other form, first of all, it's a way of... Uh, attracting uh, the opinion in favor or, or against according to the exigencies of the leader who uh, promotes the uh, plebiscite somehow. This was practically, Berlusconi was a permanent plebiscite. He was always in the TV measuring the desirability of the people. Or the, Which is what they said about Louis Napoleon in the yeah, 19th century. Every yes, day is a plebiscite. Yeah, yeah. But he didn't have the same kind of desire of representing him, the people, you know? That didn't want to embrace the entire people into his persona, a la De Gaulle. De Gaulle used to say, you know, we don't need this inter intermediary. I need the people and me. That was never the message of Berlusconi. Berlusconi never refused parties. So he was a plebiscite of the audience, but he had his parties, his people, his clique, his uh, establishment. So can I ask one last question, which is Brexit? Because when you talk about these things I mean it is one of the questions that people often discuss about Brexit was it a populist moment of course it was definitely a plebiscitary moment because it was a referendum but also some of the politicians associated with it we tend to lump them together there's a tendency to you're a Brexiteer or you're a Remainer but the Brexiteers included 
people like Boris Johnson, who I think, you know, they are the showman audience politician politicians. And then people like Nigel Farage, who are very much more on the populist side. But when you look at Brexit from the outside, do you see plebiscitary politics or do you see populist politics? Well, you may say that you can see both of them because, of course, who wanted the referendum? Helen? I mean, I'm not saying Helen wanted no, the is, referendum. Is, I'm saying, is, Helen, is, what's is, your yeah, answer yeah, to that yeah, question? Yeah, yeah, question? Well, there was significant pressure within the Conservative Party and there was that um, petition that was debated in Parliament because it reached 100,000 signatures, which is the point actually when the, the real parliamentary pressure under Cameron began from that moment, which was the autumn of 2011. So Cameron wanted it in order to do what? In order to smash down the opposition internal to his party and create his own strong support through the referendum. So that was a truly a kind of plebiscitary move. He wanted to go to the people in order to smash down the opposition internal to the party. But of course he lost. And that was a miserable a kind of strategy because perhaps he didn't know very well the opinion around him because they ruined his career and perhaps even more than that. So that was the moment of plebiscite. There was a moment of populism used by Farage and the right wing strongly when you entered in the already in motion car and he used it in order to make his own claims against the immigrants, against the Polish, against those from Eastern Europe, stealing jobs to, uh, in England. So he made this kind of populistic argument against the establishment who didn't understand how people lived in the peripheries and so on and so forth. So it was this kind of two levels of uh, politics uh, of this kind. We'll put details of Nadia Urbanati's work on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. We've also got the link to Helen's Brexit lecture and we're going to come back and talk a bit more about Brexit because there's a bit more to say than we managed to cover there. And we'll also come back to Italian politics too because it is really interesting. If you would like a Talking Politics bag, they're selling like hotcakes. There are a few left. Go to our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com and you can find out how to get one. And do please join us again next week. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Which doesn't work at all because this platform oh, Sorry. <laughs> no one ever fails. No one ever. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.